Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. Today we're going to be continuing our series exploring the history of witchcraft, with a particular focus on its overlap with the treatment of women generally. We have already explored in some detail the social, political, and literary context which informed the popular idea of the witch. As we have found, there is perhaps a false idea that the witch as we know it was an older and more universal symbol than is perhaps true. Forms of witchcraft, kinds of magical practitioners and references to magic of all kinds do date back far into antiquity, but they do not fully explain the fairly rigid concept we have in mind when we think of a witch. So we have also taken a look at the witch hunt in early modern Europe the ways in which it built upon this literary and folkloric tradition, and the ways in which it trod a new path with the birth of the satanic witch. After all, as Brian Levack summarises in The Witch Hunt in Early Modern Europe, the mere belief in the reality of the magic that witches practised was not capable of sustaining the systematic prosecution and execution of large numbers of witches. So what enabled this belief to turn into violence, and why did it happen again and again? Today we're going to be exploring one of the most violent and explosive periods of the history of the witch hunt, namely the New American Witch Hunt, with a particular focus on Salem, Massachusetts. So this series of trials would come to symbolise the witch trials, in that it supports the idea that scapegoating and societal persecution can on occasion be transformed into a large social event of this kind. The idea that Salem seemed to bubble up from a kind of vacuum and burn itself out explosively, this may perhaps give the false idea that the situation at Salem was somewhat of an anomaly, instead of part of a process by which miscarriages of justice were permitted and strengthened by the contemporaneous reporting of them. So this discussion once again could not have been made without the excellent The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present by Ronald Hutton, as well as Emotions in the History of Witchcraft, which explores witchcraft from the viewpoint of the performative and often social dimensions of the strong emotions at the heart of these community spectacles. This week, the Penguin Book of Witches has also been a great help in exploring some of the primary sources informing and feeding into the concept of the conspiracy of satanic witches on trial. As a Brit, of course, I had some ideas about Salem, but maybe not the same kind of cultural knowledge that some Americans might have on the subject. So I apologise for any errors on my part, but this book has been incredibly valuable in providing some specific details on the trials through the surviving trial records. So check it out if you get a chance. It is pretty fascinating in just how similar a lot of these cases are and just how much they really trod each other's footsteps. How cartoonishly obvious some of the techniques at play were when trying to implicate people in the guilt that was already assumed by everyone involved, basically. So as mentioned in the last episode, we will be attempting today to answer the question from... The Penguin Book of Witches, namely, how can the English colonists who settled North America, who were relatively literate compared with their European cousins, 
who were reasonably thoughtful and self-examining, who lived in a tightly interconnected communities, dependent on collective effort for success, have believed in witches. But let's not put this off anymore, like I have been doing for weeks. Um, Let's do it, let's get on with it. So how was it that witch fervour bubbled up in such a violent manner when it had largely died out in Europe? What particular set of circumstances led whole communities down this same path that seemed to be well-trodden and seemed to come to the same horrific conclusions which they would have known about? So as will become clear as we go on, and as I will do my best to highlight as we go on, the Salem situation and a North American witch hunt fervour in general were not simply an accumulation or a continuation of what had come before. After all, these trials would be similar in their brutality to only some medieval European trials, particularly those in Germany, but just how many lives they claimed and just how quickly they did it. So was there something particular about the new American colonies that left them vulnerable somehow to viral witch hunt? So there are a fair few unique influences at play in the New England witch hunts, the first of which is, of course, geographical. As Mary Beth Norton's In the Devil's Snare points out, there is a similarity in the language used to describe the devil in trial testimony of this area with the language used to describe native populations at this time. So the predominantly Puritan settlers who made up the population of Salem, Massachusetts, had settled there to escape the corrupting influence of the Church of England, and they positioned themselves on the front line of a battle between good and evil. From this viewpoint, all that differed from their strict and godly way of life was the temptation of the devil, and led to wickedness and damnation. In their view, to quote Norton again, the Salem villagers were a people of God, settled in those which were once the devil's territories. So for some of those involved, they're on the front lines of a religious war in which the devil was everywhere and under many guises. And they had a reason for believing geographically that they were in the land of the devil. Rightly or wrongly, of course. So one of the guises of the devil surrounding them at all times were the people for whom Massachusetts was their ancestral land. And the psychological strain of said belief no doubt plays into some of the cases detailed, even as just an unconscious bias rather than a conscious one. What's more, New England colonists were not only struggling against an unforgiving and unfamiliar land, but under the pressure of having to establish their own new functioning communities. So as we have explored, witchcraft accusations can, although do not always, go hand-in-hand with pressures of this kind, serving as a form of social release and arbitrary punishment for life-changing setbacks such as famine or disease. Accusations also fall along class and social divides, providing an interesting window into what and what was not acceptable behaviour and what was considered transgressional in small, more interconnected communities – as witch hunts of this kind do tend to strike predominantly in smaller interconnected communities. So New England at this time ticks a lot of the same boxes, and unsurprisingly, 
the trials there manifested a lot of the same impulses as earlier trials in Europe, at least early on. So again, to quote the Penguin Book of Witches, the need to identify who within the community did not belong manifested itself very quickly as part of the community-building project of colonisation. To continue, witches served as both literal and figurative scapegoats for frontier communities under profound economic, religious and political pressure. So rather predictably, the early cases seem to highlight the same kind of stresses as seen in European cases, particularly the English one, as the Puritans were an English colony. Many of those implicated in the earlier trials tended to be women with bad reputations, Eunice Cole being a good example. So a woman put into a delicate and dangerous position after the death of her husband, she lived a life on the fringes of society and suffered suspicion because of it. One of the largest pieces of evidence used against her was her apparent attempt to lure a young woman to come live with her. Now, of course, the details of this case are a little bit sketchy, but not only do we have this woman on the edges of society, but we have a kind of demonisation of these women-women relationships of any kind. So Cole's case has all the landmarks we are used to. An older woman on the margins, financially insecure, feared and despised by those around her. Her neighbours' complaints about her stem from petty squabbles, charity refuse, the classic small sort of altercations that we expect to see from European witch trials. But it was not just women accused in this early colony building phase of the witch trials, interestingly. Even though New England proportionately had fairly few victims of witch hunts, very early on you do start to see men implicated in it as well, which is quite interesting. So John Godfrey in Haverhill, Massachusetts, trod a very similar path to Eunice Cole. So sporadically employed and a bit of a drifter, Godfrey also just enjoyed ruffling the feathers of his community, alluding at times to his deal with the devil to sort of add to his scandalous label that he gave himself. In the case against Godfrey, he was said to send animals out to do his bidding, but not simply assumed to be familiars of his, they were often described as apparitions, as well as other non-spectral forms. These animals would then torment and vaguely threaten other community members in a way thought to be linked to Godfrey. So there is one individual who talks about being plagued by Godfrey's like familiars and he's riding on his horse and a crow comes and pecks at him and then the crow transforms itself into another animal and then into another animal and he's convinced that this string of animals vaguely tormenting them are sent by Godfrey. So that's the kind of calibre of nuisance I want you to picture in your mind. So you could imagine from this that without direct intervention it is likely that this is the kind of thing we would hear of the New England witch trials. Sporadic accusations of individuals with poor social reputations, clashing with their neighbours over meat or cheese or decade-old insults imagined or otherwise. And like those that came before them we would think that these would serve a kind of social utility, letting off steam and then kind of fizzle out once they've done their 
social duty, as they did in Europe. But William Perkins, A Discourse of the Damned Art of Witchcraft, from 1608, was a huge influence on the Puritan theologians which helped turn Salem from embers into a fire. His work was widely read among the Puritan settlers, and historian Larry Gregg in his biography of Samuel Paris, who is head of the household around which much of the Salem trials would focus, his biography suggested that a copy of the discourse had been ascribed to Paris the day before his slave Tituba's crucial confession. Now, whether Paris had read or had familiarity with the book himself, which may have influenced his actions when members of his household were accused of witchcraft, we can't know for sure. But we do know from records of the trials themselves that it was an indispensable reference work for some of the judges involved. It influenced who they sought after, what sort of evidence they used in their trials. Once you know a little bit about what this discourse of the damned art of witchcraft says, you start to see it echoed in the trials themselves and in a way that is really contrast with earlier trials. To quote, Though Paris's timely ownership of Perkins' witch-hunting manual is impossible to verify with complete accuracy, the wide reach of Perkins' scholarship is not in question. So the witchcraft, as described, is everywhere and can be seen in every turn from godliness. It is almost unbounded in scope and a direct work of the devil. To quote Perkins, Witchcraft is a wicked art, serving for the working of wonders by the assistance of the devil, so far forth as God shall in justice permit. So a fear of witchcraft and the devil was as essential to Puritan beliefs as was belief in God. They were in fact, you know, two sides of the same coin. And safeguarding against it is a continual process of trying to lead people from a temptation to sin that is inherent to their humanity. Again, to quote Perkins, for the eating of the forbidden fruit was no final or single offence, but as some have taught, contained in it the breach of every commandment of the moral law. So witchcraft, as described by Perkins, was a work of the devil, but one which was conveyed man to man, alluding to a kind of historical sense of witchcraft, of it being taught and a learned craft passed from person to person. The reason for this in the devil's view, is that it is more agreeable to the common man, again to quote Perkins, to have these ideas told to him by another person rather than the devil themselves. So we will come back to these ideas and why they became so insidious as we go on. So it is impossible to really downplay just the impact that these ideas had upon the trial proceedings as they would go on. And you hear these ideas echoed through the structure again and again, and we will talk about this more as we come to it. But before we get to the Salem trials, we will explore a few trials that came beforehand that were interesting in how they compare and contrast to them. So Alice Young and Margaret Jones are believed by many to be among the first to be executed for witchcraft in New England. Unfortunately for Alice Young, all that remains of the case against her is her name, and she joins the thousands of others notable 
now only in their death for execution of witchcraft. Margaret Jones we know a little more about, though. So like many accused who came before her, she was a cunning woman, and her medicines were said to have had, to quote, extraordinary violent effects. She was also said to be able to foretell the future, and as will be more common as the cases continue, was able to produce spectral evidence, namely a child which would vanish when followed, that she would emanate from her body. Now, Jones maintained her innocence until her death by execution, despite the finding of a so-called witch's teat on her body. And the most damning evidence used against her being her so-called malignant touch, meaning that those she touched would come to harm. Now, to state the obvious, as a cunning woman, she was often in close quarters with the sick, and the sick would often die, um... So this case in many ways had a lot of the hallmarks of a classic English one, but that's not really what we're going to be focusing on here. More, if there was an argument that the American cases were just a continuation of the English ones, this case against Alice Young shows that these kind of cases did happen, but that that alone, the continuation of this belief in witchcraft and the evidence of magical practitioners in the world was not enough to kind of transform the cases into the beast that they became in Salem. So there are many factors at work which once again transform this idea of a witch into something new, which is something we keep coming across again and again. Now the influence of English control seems to come up again and again, and early on in 1665 we have our very first New York witch case just around the time control of the colony had passed to England two years earlier. It is a simple case of some community members falling ill and the cause of their illness and eventual death being ascribed to Ralph and Mary Hall. It would be the first and last prosecution for witchcraft in New York and was notable in that the opinion of the Dutch and French ministers in relation to the case be that, to quote, The apparition of a person afflicting another is very insufficient proof of a witch. So this is hinting at one of the biggest differences between English and New England witch crazes. The use of spectral evidence as a form of evidence in trial. And it's hinting that even very early on, even people involved in other witch trials in other areas were divided on just how much you could trust spectral evidence or whether it could be used as evidence at all. So this is a divide we see very, very early on between American witch cases and these New England witch cases. And before Salem, there was an outbreak of witch panic in Hartford, Massachusetts, with the case of Rebecca and Nathaniel Greensmith. Beginning in 1662, Eight were to be eventually accused, with three being executed, and unlike many of the earlier cases we've discussed, they were executed fairly swiftly, instead of living under the suspicion of being a witch for decades. Now, the victim in this case was Anne Cole, an esteemed and well-respected member of the community and neighbour to the Greensmiths. As will become a classic hallmark for later cases, she was struck by violent fits and the appearance of the devil speaking through her closed lips. She was also, it said, mysteriously able to speak fluent Dutch, despite having no prior knowledge, 
But I will point out that also the people around her didn't really have any knowledge of Dutch, so I don't know how far they could know she was speaking fluent Dutch. The hijinks described in the devil's words of familiars sent out to do his biddings, of him taking control of her body, had less to do with an unexplained malady or this malignant touch of previous cases and more in common were what we would call nowadays a demonic possession. And it seems as if this violent demonic affliction taking over Cole's body was also catching as other members of the community fell foul to it. As for the accused Rebecca Greensmith, the devil had appeared to her under many guises, she explained, but she had refused again and again to sign a covenant with him. Instead, the devil used her body also, in all manner of violent and sexual ways, and through this ungodly union, the community itself were under attack. The Greensmiths were interrogated and subjected to the swim test, a testing of an old wives' tale that witches weren't able to sink underwater. Now, the result of passing or failing the swim test was obvious, but the two, however, did survive, and fled before more harmful tests could be done against them. I don't have much doubt that if they had stayed, they would have come to even more harm. But concurrently with these small bubblings up in New York, 1662 would see one of the last major witch trials in England, and one which would directly influence those held at Salem in 1692. The account of the Bury St Edmunds case, A Trial of Witches, would be the reference work turned to in how to deal with spectral evidence in the Salem cases. Their structure is strikingly similar and goes some way to explain why the latter Salem trial seemed to appear with a completely discrete form from what had come before, in that they leaned heavily on the past precedent of the Bury St Edmunds case. To quote, The admission of spectral evidence, or evidence gleaned in a dream or vision, as legal evidence at Bury St Edmunds, determine the conduct of witch trials in North America thereafter. So that's from the Penguin Book of Witches. It is likely without this case, or without the material written on this case, we would not have had Salem in the way that we did. So it is worth exploring this case in a little more detail now. So in Bury St Edmunds, Suffolk, England, a small group of middle-aged women are accused of bewitching some young children of the community. Rose Cullender and Amy Dunny, both widows, are accused of the act. The victims had fallen into strange and violent fits, in turn screaming or struck dumb when questioned by the court, they again and again were unable to name those who bewitched them. But the link between the children and those accused is a by now familiar one. So the mother of infant victim William Durrance asked Amy Dunny to mind her child for her while she ran some errands but forbade her from suckling the infant. So for whatever reason, Amy refused and did feed the child, and the child subsequently fell ill. It should be noted that the reason William's mother was so cautious in telling Amy not to suckle the child was because she had an already established reputation as a witch, and what's more, was thought to be above suckling age, 
And according to medical knowledge at the time, it was thought that if a child tried to feed and there was no milk to be had, it could be harmful to them. So there's of course a lot to unpack there. We have a widow who is condemned for sort of doing a favour for a neighbour. We have this sort of inherent distrust for menopausal women or women above child-rearing age, which (laughs) seems to be sort of inherent to a lot of these cases. So it's kind of textbook for what we'd expect from this point. So we're starting to see all the puzzle pieces kind of come together. An accused widow, a bad reputation stemming from her sort of fragile social position as an older woman, and children struck with violent fits and a very public display of such. This idea of this danger for the children. We must protect the children. After William was taken ill, his mother consulted a doctor, Jacob, who was said to be able to help in cases of bewitchment. So as we've already spoken of, the line between medical and magical practitioners is not as clear-cut as we think it might be in this era. So following his advice, she hangs William's blanket in the fire to try to burn up the spell and produced by the blanket was a large toad, which fell into the fire and was completely consumed, taking with it, of course, any physical evidence that might have been useful, except for the mother's eyewitness. But it was said that Amy herself at this point became burned in the same manner as the toad, with the implication that the two were linked, or she had transformed herself into a toad, and had fallen into the fire. So again, we have this idea of someone being able to physically transform or produce some sort of spectral being that was in some way linked to them. And if harm was done to this spectral being, harm would be done to them also as if they were physically linked. Now, Elizabeth Durant would also seemingly be taken ill at Amy's hand. So the child was plagued by fits again, And Amy was said to have come to visit the child to give them water, but her mother, due to her poor reputation, threw her from the house. Now, Amy and those who knew Amy were long thought to be witches in this community. And on being thrown from the house, she was said to say to the mother, you need not be so angry, for your child will not live long. Now, the child did die soon after. And although the links Amy seemed to have with the children were tenuous, at best, about as close as any reasonably small community was likely to expect, her transgressions mostly stemmed from small favours or small disagreements. Now, Amy may have been perhaps more blunt than some in saying that a sick child would die soon, but there was no magical forethought needed to guess as such. But the children would complain that at night they were visited by the horrific spectre of Amy and others accused, after which they would violently convulse and bring up pins and phlegm, finding themselves unable to utter or read the word of God. Amy was tried and found guilty, and those apparently afflicted by her, their health was miraculously restored. Now I'm going to address the elephant in the room because we will have to come back to it, but that most of these cases centre around children having violent fits and their bodies achieving feats seemingly unnatural and by definition paranormal. 
However, in every case I have read about in reference to the New England witch trials, the victims, often children, are believed wholeheartedly. But there will be some who later confess to their accounts being less than truthful. Now, whether the children felt in danger, they truly did feel scared and that they had bewitched, or that they felt kind of compelled to say these things under great societal pressure, who can say? But to put it plainly, most of what we talk about here could be faked. Even things such as bringing up a pins, it all can be achieved by normal means. And this is to say that the same burden of proof to prove their fits was not put on the children, as was the accused adults, to prove that they did not cause the fits. And this is crucial as it will be another tenet taken up in the Salem trials, which again help to kind of fan these flames. Now we will quickly touch on one more American case due to its similarity. So Catherine Harrison of Wiresfield, Connecticut, was another woman left vulnerable by the death of her husband, raising her children alone and working off of her land. And in her own eloquent defence in Westchester, New York, 1669, she describes those prejudiced with her by reason of her denying to let them have good of her. So those who received financial reward for their part in her slander and that the circumstantial and spectral evidence used for this stood up to no scrutiny. Uttering the immortal line of her doubts, how any person can affirm that by a small firelight they can clearly and distinctly know my head on a dog. She also questions how reliable memories are in terms of evidence, especially when years have passed. Now she was spared execution but was compelled to leave her home and never return after being one of the few critical voices in this trend in the witch hunting fervour, whilst on trial for her own life. However, unfortunately, her scepticism would not be as catching as the demonic and violent possession would come to be. So we arrive at a colony besieged by the devil at every turn, and witchcraft, an idea passed from man to man, stemming from this evil covenant with the devil. Influential cases such as that of Berry St. Edmunds have stressed the often spectral nature of the witch-possessed of their unbounded abilities and tendency to dramatically take over victims' bodies in service of the devil. There is no need to prove these feats as linked with witchcraft, not with past precedent for them. The violence and suffering must have a supernatural cause, as it is evident to everyone. All that was left was to root it out and destroy it. So that will have to be where we leave it for today, I did try my best to do this in one part, trying to condense things without losing the true sense of this complicated situation was just not happening, so part two will be available very soon as I wrote these two concurrently, so I promise there isn't going to be a huge wait this time, and I hope you will join me for that. This has been Sarah from Weird Horizon. You can find me wherever you like to find your podcast, and you can chat with me on Twitter if Twitter still exists by the time this podcast comes out as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcasts and search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for my channel there. It's pretty dormant at the moment, but things are coming. Stay spooky, my friends. Much love as always, but for now, 
Bye.